0: This is Songwriter, the podcast that turns stories into songs. My name is Ben Arthur. A content warning. This episode, while not at all graphic, does contend with the issue of suicide. If you or someone you know are struggling please call or text 988, or in life-threatening situations, call 911. This episode is about two brothers, Daniel and Bob Bergner. At the end of the episode, you'll hear a song that Bob wrote about their father. But we start with a book that Daniel wrote in part about Bob.
1: So I'm Daniel Bergner. I'm a writer. And we're talking about my new book, The Mind of the Moon, which is about my brother and his psychiatric journey, a woman named Caroline and a man named David and their journeys and what they can teach us. So my brother's just a little bit younger than me, 16 months. And when we were in our early twenties, was diagnosed as severely bipolar. And it's just an amazing story. I'm kind of in disbelief that it took me four decades to get around to telling it, but maybe that's for the best. I was acutely aware of our parents' fear. I was at the same time uneasy with the way they latched on to the diagnosis and to the absolute necessity of medication. And yet, I was also uneasy around my brother when we were younger. One still uncomfortable memory for me is that when he decided not to come to my wedding and he was supposed to be my best man, I tried to persuade him to come, but I was also in a way relieved. Right adjacent to that time, he'd been homeless, he'd been in a psych ward for the second time. That made me uncomfortable and even worse still now is it made me uncomfortable to think about how my friends, my world, my much more conventional world might perceive him. That's why I say I'm kind of thankful that we waited so many years to work on this together, because, you know, I'm far from that now. And I really, really do admire him. You're absolutely right. I mean, the things he's been able to do, the life he's carved out for himself is absolutely remarkable. To me, it's so full of true generosity, generosity that way exceeds mine, so full of reaching out to other people who are going through the very things he went through.
0: During a live performance earlier this year, Daniel read three excerpts from his book, The Mind and the Moon, sampling moments from his brother's journey At the beginning, during the middle, and finally, a portrait of his life as it is now. Live at the porch in Harlem, this is Daniel Bergner.
1: Before he was put on a locked ward and diagnosed as severely bipolar, my brother danced on ferry decks. The ferries ran from Seattle to the islands of Puget Sound. The impact of the Sound's rough water against the bow created a steady, emphatic beat, and above that, the engine delivered not only a churning rhythm, but something bordering on a melody, deep and ancient, like a Gregorian chant. It was a small part of my brother's gift that he both heard at swelling intensity this music of water and machinery and allowed himself to be inspired and electrified by it. His body responded with a physical, visceral version of a child's wonder as she holds a conch shell to her ear and listens to its elemental communications for the first time. He stood on the lowest deck near the front of the cars and the slung chains as the boat's combination of Gregorian choir and pounding drum surged through him. He lifted one foot to knee height then leapt high off the other and landed on the first foot, so that there was a simultaneous vaulting and transferring of weight, followed by a reversal and more repetition back and forth, melded with the strivings of his torso and arms, amounting to movements at once airborne and sinuous. The sporadic lurching of the boat should have pitched him off balance, but never did. He hung in the air, stomped his heels on the steel deck, sprang from side to side, spun and elevated again, athletic, animalistic, ethereal, impelled by the pulse of the water and the echoes of medieval worship. And soon he was on a psychiatric ward with a heavy dose of Haldol seeping into his brain. So at that time, he and I were in our early 20s and our terrified parents were told that if he didn't adhere to his medication, he would likely take his own life. But he was an aspiring dancer and aspiring musician and the tremors in his hands as well as the feeling, as he put it, of having a blanket on his brain. Uh, were unbearable to him. And after several years, against psychiatric advice, he went off his medication and there were setbacks. Um, He was arrested twice. He did another stint on a psychiatric ward and he became homeless. And so this second part that I'm gonna read from the middle of the book is just his voice talking to me about that period of homelessness. On the days I didn't work, I lined up for dinner outside a church across from the shelter. The guys who slept next to me, who spent their days in the park, they wandered over, and we all waited on the street to get in, waited to be fed. We filed into the church basement and took plates of spaghetti and chunks of bread. The basement was too crowded for anyone to sit alone, but I didn't talk to anyone while I ate. Most of the guys didn't. For those men, there was a lot of solitude. Afterward, I sometimes watched TV, but mostly I read a biography of Dwight Eisenhower that I'd found. I loved that book. The idea of I- of that Eisenhower knew D-Day would probably be a calamity, but that he went ahead with it because he had no other choice. There was a quote of his that I've never forgotten. This probably isn't exactly it, but for me, it became sort of like a credo. We did what we could with what we had when we had it. I knew how anyone would see me. I was a guy lining up on the street for my dinner. I was a guy taking my wrinkly white button-down shirt into the shower with me to wash at night. I was one more homeless person hard on his luck. But I didn't feel hard on my luck. I felt like I was escaping from this crushing fate and that whatever happened was going to be better than what I was leaving behind. I was escaping the idea that there was something wrong with me, that I needed to take drugs, that even with the drugs I couldn't trust my own judgment, that I was broken, that you're fucked, you're fucked, you're fucked, you're fucked. I thought, not for the first time, but this time it was a clear calculation, I'd rather be dead than be a broken person. And even though I had just been arrested, And even though I had just spent weeks on a psych ward for the second time, and even though I was gonna be living indefinitely in a homeless shelter, this was better than the other narrative. That was a life I just did not want to live. Flash forward, by now for close to 30 years, My brother's lived a very meaningful, flourishing life. He's the pastor of an Episcopalian church outside New Haven. Among other things, as a volunteer, he's brought music to prisons, to halfway houses, and to locked psychiatric wards. Every week, my brother visits a psychiatric hospital. Broad-shouldered though he is, when he walks through the lobby, And as he waits for the elevator, and as he approaches the nurse receptionist, in her booth, behind plexiglass, outside a locked ward, he looks somewhat frail. It is a frailty born of difference. He is doing something that no one has asked him to do, something that didn't exist in this place before he began. With his guitar slung over his shoulder, he appears vaguely eccentric, a would-be musician, in late middle age, wandering around the facility. Through the plexiglass, he identifies himself to the nurse. She is baffled. You don't remember me? He asks. Though he has been coming regularly, it is as if he is completely unknown, as if between the changing shifts of the staff, the demands of their work, and the slight strangeness of his mission, he is erased after each visit. But before he's turned away, another nurse happens to emerge through the heavy door into the vestibule, someone who does remember him. A call is made, a code is pressed. My brother steps through the ward door, which is marked in big letters, A-W-O-L, precaution. He walks down a corridor. The staff ignores him. He's left on his own to get the attention of the patients all of them in their teens or 20s, in slippers, with ID tags on their wrists. Do you want to come sing? He asks them, as they lie on their beds, or sit within side rooms, or shuffle along the hall. Come on and sing. Do I want to do this? A young man asks him, quizzical. My brother's answer pulls the patient into a communal room of pastel-colored plastic chairs, A few more follow. He hands out his well-worn blue lyric books, and a teenage girl flips through. Very hospital-friendly, she says disdainfully. She heads away up the corridor. But the rest remain, and the number grows, and though they are mute, my brother's dexterity on the guitar holds their interest until one of them can't resist and calls out the name of a ballad from the book. It was a hit a few years ago. Do you remember this song, Dad? A young woman with an ID bracelet asks the man in street clothes in the chair beside her. He tells her he does. My brother replicates the ballad's opening. He replicates it as closely as can be done on a lone acoustic guitar, the spareness of his sound, the solitariness of it the difference between the fragility of his version and the orchestra of the original, stirring a longing in the room.
0: And now for the song written in response.
2: So my name is Bob Bergner. And I am a musician, and a dancer, and the pastor of an Episcopal church in Hamden, Connecticut. Our parish just recently purchased a food truck to enable our food ministry to go out into the community and bring Dinner for a Dollar, that's the name of the ministry, Dinner for a Dollar, to people where they need it. We also have an on-site Dinner for a Dollar once a week, and another on-site Dinner for a Dollar at a neighboring church once a week. We have also worked in collaboration with the local homeless shelter to welcome people without homes into our church, either for a intensive week stay or also during the winter as an emergency warming shelter when the weather gets cold. And then I do some work at the local hospital. So Yale New Haven Hospital is just down the street. And for many years, I was going to the uh, psych units at Yale New Haven and singing with patients and actually writing songs with patients and A couple of times a month I play the piano in the cafeteria just for people's general well-being. One other exciting project going on at my parish, and that is we're doing something called Sorts to Plowshares. We help local municipalities organize gun buybacks, so people bring their guns in and they get some sort of remuneration for them. And then we take the guns and we destroy them, and then we turn the gun parts into garden tools and jewelry. So for years, that whole story that appears in The Mind in the Moon was just something I didn't talk about. So for, yeah, probably about two decades, I just, I never mentioned it. People could talk about their experience with mental illness, mental challenges, emotional challenges, and I wouldn't say, oh, well, let me tell you what happened to me. I, I just listened to their story. So when Dan asked me if I'd be willing to share my story in his book... I hesitated. I thought it might be helpful to other people to have my story told. And I knew Dan would do a great job in telling it. I don't care if the modern world says there's no more stigma about mental illness. But it can be a really... I won't say it is. I will say it can be a wildly damaging thing to do to somebody. But I am wildly fortunate to have somehow found my way out of that, to have just always thought, you know, this just isn't, as kind of as my brother says about himself observing me, this just doesn't seem quite right, like <laughs> there's nothing wrong with me, in an essential sort of way, but if I hadn't had that little inkling, I I might not be alive right now. I'm very fortunate, I'm not sure why I'm so fortunate, to have found my way out of that. And there were some pretty dramatic situations. Like, there were people, including my parents, who really, A, thought there was something wrong with me, and really wanted to not let me go, not let me find my way out. That they were so worried about me that they would rather have me as a lifelong psychiatric patient than let me find my way back to health. In some way, the mental health issue and the artistic creativity and passion are kind of melded together because of exactly when supposedly the mental health issue arose and the way that it was framed by my parents. So my mother coming to the hospital and saying, now we realize that anytime you think you're a musician, a singer, or a dancer, it's a sign of how sick you are, you should tell your doctor and have your lithium level adjusted, like that is like the marriage of those two things. So for me, when I think back on those times and think, what were they thinking? I see that for them, those two things were linked. And I also see that a lot of the pressure that I felt myself under, and admittedly confusion that I had about how to get on with my life, is was really linked with me feeling this calling to be an artist, but not feeling like I had support to do that. Well, there's no doubt that I was having unusual experiences. And there's no doubt that I didn't know how to constructively live those unusual experiences. I personally wouldn't call that a mental illness. In other cultures, you know, that would be like the training ground for... (laughs) a shaman or, a, or an artist. But because in our culture there's absolutely no structure for that and there's no teaching about that so if you start having unusual experiences whether they're visions or you're hearing voices or just weird things seem to be happening or you're coming up with these creative ideas of which dancing on a ferryboat platform is sort of the most benign But but as a 20 year old in this culture and in my family there there was nothing no way to know what to do with that so it kind of gets expressed in dramatic ways that seemed sort of well they seem dramatic and unusual and some people might put a label on that as mentally ill but I can promise you that I was
0: 100% aware of what's going on what was going on From here, Daniel joins back in for a virtual conversation with his brother about their parents, forgiveness, and Bob's song.
2: As a psychiatric patient or former psychiatric patient, you are definitely vulnerable to the opinions of other people. So I felt very vulnerable to my father's actual influence over me, but really potential influence over what happened to me. He had this weird way of gazing into my eyes as though he could see something. He was going to be able to tell something by gazing into my eyes.
1: There are times more than just times, it's more than occasional when I have my own suicidal thoughts and there are also times when I feel depression coming on and it's very, very physical for me and it feels like my arms are turning to liquid and it's a scary feeling. My experience of these feelings, whether it's around suicide or whether it's around that kind of very physical sort of waves of depression, which fortunately enough for me, the depression side doesn't come too, too often. Um, So I don't want to compare myself. It would be false to compare myself to people who really very constantly wrestle with that. Nevertheless, it, it offered me, I think, not just empathy, but a willingness to just sort of go with the perspective of people like my brother, who are trying to say, wait, let's not panic. Let's see if there's another way. It's not gonna be true for everyone. And I don't wanna be here preaching against medication. That would be not just irresponsible, but arrogant on my part. But if we don't react with fear, if we avoid fear or if we at least quiet our fear, we might be able to see things in a different way, and we might be able to see ourselves past the most terrifying labels and toward really special lives.
2: When I had first stopped taking lithium, and I was I was a, I was a homeless person sitting on the steps of a church in Central Square in Cambridge, and just just looking up at the sky and saying. I don't know how this is going to work out, but if you will help me, there, I'll get emotional. I've been remarkably unemotional for 45 minutes, oh. almost an hour. Yeah, so asking for help from whatever it is, from the universe, and and actually feeling that there was help. I know that's been a huge part of my return to myself, my taking up again of my artistic practices. and when you don't have any idea what to do when a circumstance like how am I going to interact with my father when he's dying or how am I going to interact with him now for that matter when he was still alive yeah this might be a good time to pray is like the answer like I don't know what the answer is but prayer could help the only thing to say as I wrote that song
1: I think back on our parents' response to what my brother was going through with a lot of empathy for their fear and never losing sight of that terror, because I think so many families go through this. Our parents' relationship with my brother never really Healed. I think they never shed that level, if not of terror, trepidation, or a profound trepidation, I think, remain. Their way of seeing him as a patient cost him. It cost him, perhaps as an artist, certainly cost him just as a person, because it's really hard to escape our parents way of seeing us.
2: It certainly came on unexpectedly, so I didn't think, oh, I should write a song about my dad. So I was at a trauma trauma workshop, and it was on, on the Hudson River, and so I just took my guitar out to this little gazebo out overlooking the river, actually across the, the river directly from West Point, and just thought, oh, I should—I wasn't really going for my own trauma— <laughs> I probably thought I'm, I'm done with trauma. I was really going as a pastor to, you know, learn about people's living through traumatic experience. So anyway, I thought I should go try to write a song. So I brought my guitar out and I'm just standing under the gazebo, it was kind of raining. It was a cold May day. And I could actually hear the crew team from West Point, like calling out the strokes. So they're like, there was this rhythm going on in the background. And I just started strumming chords and thinking about my dad and his, Approaching although it was another three years before he died approaching end, I yeah, I just started writing Yeah, so I was literally imagining what it would be like as my father approached his death and and how I would How I was still with mixed feelings about our relationship. I didn't share my mixed feelings with him Like when we'd see each other I I just treated him like you would treat your dad you know, I had some mixed feelings, let's put it that way, about our, the history of our relationship. So I wasn't sure how I would respond when when that time came to say goodbye.
1: I still remember my brother coming to Thanksgiving dinner at my house, and we were waiting. Our father was still alive. We were waiting for his arrival, because we were going to have to carry him up the stairs in his wheelchair. And... My brother got there early. And so, for me and my son, he played that song. And my son and I just sobbed. I'm about to tear up right now, just because there's so much pain and love there.
2: Over the later years, he he was very positive, particularly about my musical enterprises. But he never freely on his own said, you know, I'm really sorry that we did that because obviously you are a very talented person and you merited being supported in your artistic processes, projects, not questioned and even whatever you want to call that, even abused because of them. I wish he had done that.
1: We're still partly the people that our parents saw. So, you know, my brother played us that song. I guess, you know, we were in our late 50s. And it was all too easy to feel...
2: Bob's heart at 23. So I had once or twice said, Dad, what did you, you know, what were you guys thinking? And he said, oh, we're, we're sorry, we did the best we could, or we didn't realize how talented you were. But still, that's one thing to be asked about it and then say that. But it would be another thing to, over the years, realizing... The talent that I did have to say, wow, that's really good. You know, we should have we didn't do the right thing. So that line about I don't really want to call was an expression of that. Disappointment, frustration, what felt like an inevitable or unavoidable sort of interruption in our relationship. So I could forgive him for not doing it, but I I would always feel like Boy, that would have been the right thing to do, to make that gesture.
0: This is Bob Bergner with a song for Dad.
3: to do an ending Or if you'll just fade away I don't know if I know how to do ascending If I'll have anything to say Either way the arc of time is bending We're surely coming to that day I don't know if the bank of love is lending This might be a good time to pray It's hard to see you in your rolling chair It's hard to have to help you down the stairs It's hard to not hear you when you're talking It's hard to see you Looking scared But really the hardest thing of all Is I don't really want to call Cause I know you know you nearly crushed my life But I don't feel any regret from you at all I don't know if you know how to do an ending Or if you'll just fade away I don't know if I know how to do ascending If I'll have anything to say Either way the arc of time is bending We're surely coming to that day I don't know if the bank of love is lending This might be a good time to pray By the way the arc of time is bending We're surely coming to that day I don't know if the bank of love is lending This might be a good time to pray This might be a good time to pray
0: That was Bob Bergner with a song for Dad. For a live performance with Daniel, I wrote a song in response to the Mind of the Moon. It's called One on One, and it's available wherever music streams. Speaking of which, on Saturday, June tenth, I'll be playing a show in Charlottesville, Virginia. That was organized by the lovely people behind the Derringer Discoveries podcast. The show will be at the Park Street Coffee House, and I'll be playing with John Tyler Wyden. If you're anywhere nearby, come say hi. The next episode features a story from journalist and author Masha Gessen and a song written in response by Maria Sonovitsky. Songwriter is 100% independently produced by Hook and Crook. If you want to support the artists and the producer who makes it, please consider a premium subscription from Apple or Spotify. Five-star reviews or kind words on social media or IRL to someone who you think might enjoy the show are very much appreciated as well. You can always get early access to Songwriter at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Finally, thanks, as always, to Rob Reinhart and Acoustic Cafe.